Psalm 42, starting in verse 1, we will read to the end of Psalm 43, which is 43, verse 5. Please give your attention to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word as it is read. To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon and from the hills of Mitzar. Deep calls into deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp, I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. As we look at this psalm this morning, the question I have for you this morning is, have you ever longed for something? You know what I mean? Have you ever really, really wanted something? Have you ever really greatly desired something or someone that you just had to have it and would cross land and sea to get? And I think this is something maybe we've all felt in our lives from time to time. It could be a person with whom you felt a deep passion it could be a thing that you've wanted for some time. But whatever it is, the idea of longing for something is common to all people. Well, this morning, as we said, and for the next two months, Lord willing, as we go through December and January, we're going to be taking a break from the Gospel of John, and we're going to start looking at the book of Psalms. In particular, we're going to be looking at book two of the Psalms. And maybe some of you have Bibles that have at the beginning of 42, a little heading that says book two, Psalms 42 through 72. So the Psalms, in case you didn't know, were broken up into five books. Some believe that it's because of the five books of Moses. You have five books of the Psalms and so on. But scholars 
And commentators suggest, and I agree, that there is a flow to the Psalms, that there is, there is a, a theme that is presented all throughout the Psalms. And that flow is seen in the movements throughout the five books of the Psalms. So you might ask, well, why start with book two? Why not start with book one? I mean, that would seem to be the most logical place to start. You start with one, then you go to two. Well, some see in book two a transition, a transition from the success of the Davidic kingdom or the Davidic monarchy to the, what becomes the ultimate failure of the monarchy under Solomon. So if you know the history of Israel, King David uh, united the kingdoms of, of Israel and, and began a reign of 40 years. It was a, a, the golden age of, of Israel. And then he left it to his son Solomon, who actually increased the wealth and, po- and prosperity and the power of Israel. But you know, when Solomon died, he passed it on to his son Rehoboam, the kingdom was split in two. So that book two kind of sees that, that theme going through there, this, this ultimate failure of the monarchy under Solomon. So book two of the Psalter shows us the ups and the downs of life, as I like to call it, under the sun, as they say in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun, life in the world around us. Book two of the Psalter will show us ups and downs. You'll see highs and lows, victories and defeats. But all through this book, we get a theme, and that theme is a heart longing for God throughout this, these Psalms, 42 through 72. So as we begin this look at book two of the Psalter, we start with Psalms 42 and 43. And as I said earlier, these Psalms are really considered by many to be one Psalm. And one reason for that is there's a lack of uh, a, a superscription or some kind of credit to Psalm 43 as to who wrote it. You got in Psalm 42 is written by the sons of Korah. Psalm 43 has no, no consideration to the author. But also you have, and I think this is the stronger uh, argument, you have this recurring refrain that you see found in verse 5 of 42. You see it found in verse 11 of 42. And you see it found in verse 5 of 43, this idea of why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. So that kind of constant refrain, to me, links these two psalms as one. So as we come to this psalm this morning, we're going to see three things. First, in in verses uh, 1 through 5 of Psalm 42, we're going to see a thirsty soul. A thirsty soul. Then in verses 6 through 11 of Psalm 42, we're going to see a tormented soul. And then finally, in Psalm 43, verses 1 through 5, we're going to see a vindicated soul. So a thirsty soul, a tormented soul, a vindicated soul. And the big idea for this morning is true hope in Jesus Christ is the only cure for a thirsty soul. So Psalm 42 opens up with a title line that says, To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, or a, a maskil, that is the, the Hebrew word. It means, it's like a, an instruction psalm. It is a teaching psalm. It's teaching a lesson here. And we learn that this psalm was composed by a group of people called the sons of Korah. And unless you think it's like some you know, ancient you know, Christian rock band or something, it, it's not. It's, it's a group of people that uh, they have a history here. And you might recall Korah, 
was a Levite. He was a, a member of the tribe of Levi who, along with a couple of others, incited a rebellion against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You can find this in Numbers chapter 16, Korah's rebellion. Long story short, the rebellion fell short and Korah and his, follow, and his fellow conspirators were killed in judgment. But we learn later on in Numbers 26, 11, that the, the sons of Korah survived. So the sons of Korah, they were Levites. The Levites were uh, assigned the task of working in the tabernacle. They helped the priests. And the sons of Korah, being Levites, were servants in the temple, and they served in temple worship. And in fact, by the time of King David, some of them were employed to be in charge of psalm singing in the house of God. So you've got the sons of Korah, were these Levites who were in charge of the worship in the house of God. Now, outside of this, we don't know much more about the circumstances around this psalm. I mean, some psalms will tell you in their superscript that this psalm was written when David was on the run, when David was in a cave, when David was feeling bad or whatever. This one doesn't give us that. So we don't have any clear indication what was going on in the life of the psalmist when he wrote this. Now, there's some speculation. Some speculate that this psalm was inspired uh, that the inspiration of the psalm was taken from the incident of Absalom's rebellion. So if you know who Absalom was, he was one of David's sons. He led and he incited a revolt against his father. His father was kicked out for a time and he was on the run. So it was during this time, perhaps, that this psalm was written. But there's no real proof of that. It's just a speculation. But what is clear and what is certain with this psalm is that it describes the heart of a thirsty soul, a thirsty soul. Look again, please, at verses 1, 2, and 3. As the psalmist writes, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God? Now, you can even hear in those words the longing and the despair of the psalmist as he compares himself to a, a thirsty deer, a panting deer. If this psalm indeed was written during or perhaps inspired by the events of Absalom's rebellion, then it's understandable why the psalmist is reacting this way. The psalmist is reacting this way because he's been driven from his home. He's been driven from the place of worship in Jerusalem and he's been driven from the very place where God has said his name, where God met with his people. Imagine being driven from your home, from your place of worship. Imagine being un unable to gather together Sunday morning and worship God. Would that cause you distress? Would that cause you sorrow? It did for the psalmist. The psalmist was so longing for true worship of God that he likens his current existence to a thirsty deer longing for water. Imagine a deer just panting for, for water. We'll find anything water, we'll just drink it. That's what this psalmist is saying here. It's like, I am away from the place of worship. Just give me something, anything. As the deer desperately searches for water, so too does the psalmist's soul, his life, his living being, 
long for and desire to be with God. He thirsts for God. He thirsts for the living God. Now I find this interesting because how many people from other religions actually thirst for their God? I, mean, I don't know. I'm just I'm speculating here. But do Muslims thirst for Allah? Do Buddhists thirst for Buddha? I've never heard any of that. But Christians thirst for God, for the living God, the God who has condescended to enter into a covenant relationship with his people through Jesus Christ. He is a personal God. He is a living God. He is a loving God. He is a satisfying God. This thirst for the living God has the psalmist longing to appear before God, to be in his presence, to be with the people of God, worshiping God. And this thirst is so deep and so pronounced that the psalmist says that he feasts on a meal of his own tears. And what makes this longing even worse is that his enemies taunt him. It's like, where is your God? Why hasn't your God delivered you? You are away from your home. Where is your God? Now in verse 4, we see the psalmist recall former days when he used to go to the house of the Lord on sacred Jewish feast days and worship with the multitude. Going to worship was a joy and it was a delight for the psalmist. He says he used to lift up his voice in joy and praise to God. But no more. And it brings the psalmist to despair. Look again at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance or the the help that comes from seeing his face. Here we see the psalmist challenge his own soul as he asks, why are you cast down, O my soul? Absence from his home and his place of worship has brought on a bout of depression in the psalmist. The psalmist tries to arouse himself from it by stoking up his hope in God. He still hopes one day to again worship God in Jerusalem where he should be. And when all else fails, all he has left to fall back on is hope in God. Now, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist and I can't diagnose when someone is battling depression. But what I do know is that everyone has a God-shaped hole in their heart. Everyone has a God-shaped hole in their heart. St. Augustine, the ancient church father, once said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Depression comes in many shapes and forms and people attempt to deal with depression in their own ways or don't deal with it at all. But the bottom line is this, all such maladies of the soul, all such maladies of the heart ultimately find their cure in God. 
The psalmist was depressed. He couldn't worship. He couldn't be with God's people. But he could trust in God to help him through his depression. More importantly, again, would we miss public worship if, God forbid, we couldn't gather for some reason? And that could be a reality nowadays. I mean, in fact, it wasn't all that long ago that we had to close our our doors here for some time because of COVID. And if the pressure mounts and if the fears rise, we may have to close our doors again. You never know what things go on in this world. But did you miss being in God's house with God's people during that time? The idea here that the psalmist is trying to get is that worship is integral to the Christian life. It is what we were created for. And our lives are empty and incomplete without it. We move on now to verses 6 through 11 of Psalm 42, as we look now at a tormented soul. So not only was the psalmist a thirsty soul, but he was also a tormented soul. Look again at verses 6 and 7, where he says, Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hills of Mitzar. Deep calls into deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The psalmist can't worship. He is on the run from his home and away from the place of worship. And this is devastating for his soul. In verse 5, he asks, why are you cast down, O my soul? And here in verse 6, he cries out to God, O my soul, my soul is cast down before me. And that word cast down means literally to sink or to depress. It's as if his soul is, is being crushed under the weight of his current predicament. So the only thing he can do here is to remember the better days from the land of Jordan. And this exhortation to remember is common all throughout the scriptures. The people of God constantly need to remember. And why is that? Because we constantly forget the glories and the grace of God. We forget the grace of God. We forget the goodness of God. We forget the blessings of God. And we forget because we live in a sin-cursed world that is filled with constant reminders that it is sin-cursed, right? I mean, look at the year 2020. It is just one big fat reminder (laughs) that we live in a sin-cursed world. And even if it weren't 2020, if you just watch the nightly news or if you peruse social media, uh, you will get all the reminder that you need that we live in a sin-cursed world. And it can be depressing. It can be disheartening. I know I get depressed sometimes reading the news, seeing what's going on in the world. And it can cause one to lose one's faith in humanity. And that's why we need to remember better days. Even when we're in a foreign land, like the psalmist says here. He remembers God even though he is no longer in the promised land. Even though he cannot go to God's house to worship. 
But it's not enough. Look again at verse 7. He is trying to remember God from a foreign land, but he feels as if he is drowning in a tsunami of grief and depression. He is a tormented soul. And note, too, that the psalmist credits this metaphorical drowning to God. He says, your waterfalls, your waves, your billows. In a sense, it's as if he's feeling as if he's been abandoned by God. And that's the worst kind of feeling there is, right? When you're on the road, when you've been kicked out of your home, when you can't go to God's house and worship, and you hope in God, and now you feel as if you've been abandoned by him? It can be devastating. And that's what the psalmist is getting at in verses 8 through 10, where he says, The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to God, to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Now, the truth of the matter is found in verse 8. The Lord does command his loving kindness, his chesed, his covenant love by day. His compassions are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. We sung that earlier from Lamentations 3, verse 23. And that's what we need to do when we are feeling thirsty within and tormented without. We need to rehearse the great truths of God's never-ending love for his people, his covenant love, his chesed for his people. And here the psalmist trusts the Lord to then command his loving kindness by day, and the psalmist then will respond with song and prayer by night. It's a great kind of lesson there in the give and take in worship. We receive God's kindness, that is, him speaking to us, and then we respond in song, in prayer to him. All the more reason that we sing praises to the Lord, not only here in a corporate setting as we are gathered this morning, but also in a private setting, in a family setting, it is always appropriate to sing praises to God because these songs reinforce gospel truths in our hearts, in our minds, to help us remember when we feel as if the Lord has abandoned us. But when you're a thirsty and tormented soul, sometimes even that is not enough. In verses 9 and 10, we see that the, the, the psalmist says, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The psalmist is depressed and he is distressed. And even though he recognizes God as his rock, he still feels as if God has forgotten him. His enemies oppress him. His enemies abuse him. His enemies reproach him. And again, they taunt, where is your God? But just like earlier, the psalmist attempts to break himself out of his depressed and distressed state by reading again the words of Psalm 42.5 or 42.11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, 
the help of my countenance and my God. And that word hope means to trust, to wait upon God. God is the faithful one he who never lets us down. And while it may seem that God has forgotten us, biblical hope, which is grounded in the person and character of God, never disappoints. So despite all that's happening in the psalmist's heart, he says, I shall yet praise him. Kind of reminds me of what happens with Job when God allows Satan to torment Job. And his wife comes up to me and comes up to Job and says, why do you still worship God, curse God and die? And what does Job say? He says, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I shall yet praise him. I shall yet praise him. That is the hopeful confidence of a thirsty and tormented soul. Now, it may seem trite and cliche to say, hope in God. You know, things are going bad. Don't worry, hope in God. Especially when you feel as if God has forgotten you. But that's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. If we were to walk by sight, we would despair. We would distress. We would feel as if things are going to hell in a handbasket. What we see in this world is not the true reality for the people of God. It is the light and momentary afflictions of living life in this sin-cursed world. The true reality is what is awaiting us on the other side when Christ returns, when our hope in God is finally vindicated, and we will indeed praise Him. But I understand how saying hope in God may not help immediately when you feel thirsty and tormented. And again, that's why the Bible is full of commands to remember, full of commands to hope, remember the goodness and the grace of the Lord. So what does a thirsty and tormented soul then do? Eventually he cries out to God to vindicate him, as we see in verses 1 and 2. Of Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? The psalmist cries out to God now to be his advocate, to be his judge to stand in for him, to judge him, to look at him. That word vindicate literally means to judge me, to take up my case, examine me and see that I am being oppressed by my enemies. Have you ever felt that way sometimes? You're being so oppressed by things going on in the world that you just want to cry out to God? This is, the whole world is against you, and the only thing you can do is cry out to God to vindicate you. This is more than just mere depression. It is also oppression. And again, if the situation surrounding the psalm is truly David's uh, usurpation and exile from Absalom's rebellion, then it kind of makes sense, right? The psalmist is crying out to God to take up their cause against those who have rebelled against God's anointed. 
an ungodly and an unjust man could be Absalom and his followers. Again, we don't know for certain. But whatever the case may be, it is clear that throughout the history of God's people, both Old and New Testament, there have been those who have oppressed and unfairly treated the people of God. In fact, the whole history of redemption really is the chronicle of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. It is that battle between Satan and the forces of God. And ungodly people and nations have always, consciously or unconsciously, tried to malign and destroy God's people. Yet the Lord, in his gracious and providential care, does vindicate his people. In fact, when David was on the run from Saul, back in 1 Samuel, there's a story when David was hiding in the wilderness of En Gedi. And he's hiding in this cave, and Saul comes in to relieve himself. It's, it's kind of put colorfully in the Bible, but he comes into the cave where David's hiding. And David is urged by his friends, now you have the opportunity. Now's your chance to, to take your matters into your own hand. Kill Saul and you will ascend to the kingdom. But instead, David somehow manages to sneak up to Saul and just cuts off the corner of his robe. And we learn in 1 Samuel 24, 15, Saul's, or David says, The Lord therefore be judge and judge between me and you and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand. In other words, David knew he was God's anointed, but he would not act against Saul because Saul was officially the king. He would let God adjudicate. He would let God vindicate him and plead his case. And eventually the Lord did deliver Saul or David out of Saul's hands. And the Lord will deliver you from whatever afflicts you. Whether it's the thirsty soul of inner turmoil and depression or the tormented soul of external oppression, the Lord will deliver you. Perhaps not in your timing or perhaps not in the manner you think you ought to be vindicated, but he will vindicate you. But as usual, as is often the case, knowing the truth and experiencing the truth are two radically different things, right? It's one thing to know what's true, and it's one thing to actually live it and experience it in your life. And note how this psalm, Psalms 42 and 43, seem to go back and forth between hope and despair. He despairs and he says, I'm going to hope in God, but then he cries out to God, why have you left me? Why have you forgot me? I'm going to hope in God. It's like a roller coaster of emotion. And even here, after the call for God to vindicate him and a confession that God is the God of my strength, the psalmist despairs yet again. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? In other words, if you are the God of my strength, if you are the God who vindicates, why do I still feel forsaken? Why am I still being oppressed? Again, have you felt like this? Have you ever questioned God? If God loves me, why are bad things happening to me? If God loves me, why can't I find a job? If God loves me, why can't I find a spouse? If God loves me, why did my loved one die? If God loves me, why am I still struggling to see the light at the end of this particular tunnel? 
And I've talked to some people who think it's actually sinful to feel this way. It's that it's sinful to feel depressed, that somehow you are violating some commandment of God. Now, the, the Bible does command us to be joyful, but you have to understand joyful is not happy, okay? <laughs> happy and joyful are two different things. Happy is a feeling that can come and go. Joy is something that is settled in concrete, knowing the truths of God. But somehow people say, you know, you need to be joyful, so therefore it's a sin to feel depressed. And moreover, it's even a greater sin than to complain to God against, about, about that. But beloved, none of that is true. And I'm here to tell you that God wants to hear your honest, heartfelt prayers. The Bible says in Psalm 62, 8, Trust in him, that is God, at all times. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And that word pour out speaks of just letting it all go. It's like emptying the contents of a cup. Pour it all out before God. The joy, the pain, the happiness, the sorrow, all of it. Pour it out to God. He wants to hear you. He wants to, you to take refuge in him. Again, we live in a sin-cursed world and God knows that it's not all going to be sunshine and happiness for us. But the beautiful thing about the Psalms, and particularly these Psalms, is that they give a God-inspired voice to the full range of human emotions. Again, this idea that if you, you cannot be depressed, then that, whoever says that needs to read the Psalms because there's plenty of these Psalms in here that are speaking from a, a, a place of darkness. A place of where is God in all of this? They give the full range of human emotion and they give God-inspired words to pray back to God. These are great psalms to pray back to God, to use as your prayer. Why do, do I feel cast down, O oh my soul? Hope in God. So as we get here to verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 43, we see what happens or what appears to be the final triumph of hope in verses 3 and 4. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O oh God, my God. Now we don't see the actual vindication of the psalmist, but what we do see is the triumph of his hope. And just as the pillar of uh, fire and cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, led the Israelites through the wilderness to the promised land, so too the psalmist asked God to send out his light and his truth. And his hope is that God's light and truth will then once again lead him back to Zion, lead him back to God's holy hill, lead him back to the tabernacle so that he could worship God. And that's what he says there. Once there, the psalmist declares that he will go to the altar of God. His greatest longing is to return to true worship of God, his exceeding joy. And then finally, we get this third instance of the refrain here in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Three times the question is asked, why are you cast down, O my soul? Three times the psalmist comes back with the only answer that can be given. Hope in God, for I shall yet 
praise him. Sometimes it can be hard for fellow human beings to sympathize or to empathize with someone else's pain. I mean, in one sense, we can all relate to feeling depressed or oppressed, but in quite another sense, then, is we can't all relate to how you're feeling depressed or how you're feeling oppressed. You know what I mean? I mean, it's basically your experiences are just that. They are your experiences. I can understand and sympathize them up to a point, but I cannot feel what you're feeling. But you know who can perfectly relate to your experiences? It's Jesus Christ. But the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ can sympathize perfectly with our weaknesses. Did you hear that? Jesus Christ can perfectly sympathize with your weaknesses. And if you don't think Jesus knows what it's like to be forgotten and forsaken, recall his crucifixion, how on the cross he cried out. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just as the psalmist cried out, why have you forgotten me? Why do you cast me off? So too, the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, was forsaken by his Father. He was forsaken for you. And he was forsaken for me. He was forsaken because he became sin for you. And he became sin for me. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. His becoming sin for us is what enables us then to become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And yet though he was forsaken, God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father. He has been exalted into glory. It's been said by people far smarter than I am that Jesus Christ is the great singer of the Psalms. Okay? I mean, Jesus says on the road to Emmaus that all of the Old Testament, the law, the writings, the prophets, they all speak to me. And here, Jesus Christ can be seen as the one who sings the Psalms himself. In other words, the Psalms, like all of Scripture, testify to him. They testify to his life, his death, his experiences, his victory. And we will see this as we go through the Psalms in weeks to come. But know this. Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be a thirsty soul. When he was on the cross, he cried out to those around him, I thirst. Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be a tormented soul. He was forsaken by the Father. And Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be a vindicated soul. For the Father has highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow And every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. 
And we too will find our vindication in him, both in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray.